Let's get into what is going to be a new series uh, called The Restoration Man. It's only a short one, short series, going through the summer. And it's based on the resurrection appearances of Jesus. Not all of them, I don't think, but looking at them, uh, focusing on Jesus' resurrection. The title comes from a a television program, which I'm, I'm afraid I haven't seen. But I understand that in it, old dilapidated buildings are restored to their former glory. And so Jesus is the supreme restoration man. And we're going to see how he restores things, what he's doing for us through his work on the cross and the resurrection. And actually, it's always good to look at this, but it's very good in a week when there's so many uncertainties and worries. It's good to look at something really cosmic. I'm not exaggerating, really big to look at the resurrection of Jesus. And I'll spend a little more time on the background than perhaps in other weeks uh, because I think it's right to focus on the resurrection and enjoy it and understand what it's about. And it is vital to us as Christians, vital to our understanding of what our faith's about, vital to understanding what it is to be a Christian, and it's the rock on which we build so much of our faith as we go forward. Now today we're going to pick up in a few minutes the incident in John 20 where Mary Magdalene meets the risen Jesus. Now she is actually the first person, the first disciple to meet Jesus, the first one to see him, the first one to speak to him. Now that is exciting, that is a huge privilege, it's an amazing thing that she is. But you wouldn't even perhaps get the full magnitude of it without a little bit of background. So I'm just going to give you a few minutes background on Mary. Mary Magdalene is called Mary Magdalene because she comes from a place called Magdala. And Magdala was unimportant, despised little village. One commentator calls it a squalid little village south of the plain of Gennesaret. So she comes from a little nowhere place. It's not necessarily a flattering thing to have been given the title Magdala. I don't quite know if it's a nickname or something, but, you know, she came from Magdala, and that wasn't a great place to come from. But that's only the beginning of the story. Two of the gospel writers, Mark and Luke, tell us specifically that she had seven demons cast out of her. When she first met Jesus, she was a deeply demonized, troubled woman from a nowhere place. And she was completely delivered of this demonic oppression. In the words of a great hymn, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. That is what happened to Mary Magdalene. Now, church tradition says that she had been a prostitute. There is no biblical evidence for that. And we don't really need to go right into that to get the full understanding that this dear woman was a troubled soul at the bottom of the pile socially. And she was the one who not only was saved, but had the privilege of being the first person to meet the risen Jesus. Now, probably one of the things that, humanly speaking, drove her was her great love for Jesus. She had been so changed, so helped, so delivered, so healed. Everything had been turned round for her, and she loved Jesus deeply. But the bit of the story we're about to break into is a very low point for her, very sad point for her. This Jesus who she loved had just been cruelly, shamefully, hideously killed on a Roman cross. It was a shameful, though naked, they 
battered and bleeding. It's a torturous death, deliberately painful, still thought to be one of the most painful ways of killing someone. It was horrible. And she had watched her dear Lord die, this lingering death. She'd seen his body, finally abused with a spear thrust from one of the soldiers, taken down from the cross and wrapped lovingly by Joseph Arimathea and Nicodemus in, in a shroud or a body, uh, body linen and lots of spices put in, probably to bring an element of uh, preservation maybe, that was, and, and, and cover the smell of decaying flesh too later. So that, that, that had been done. And that she and the women were told in the other Gospels, they watched this happen, we're told that, and they'd watched the, Nicodemus and Joseph put the body in what was in fact Joseph's tomb. He was a wealthy man. He'd had this cave carved out the rock uh, for his own death and he put Jesus in there. They put the body of Jesus in there and they rolled a stone across it. That would have been a heavy stone. I guess the two men might just about have done it. I don't know. They maybe had some servants to help them. But a heavy stone was rolled in front and left in a groove probably so it sort of clunked into place in front of the cave. And then the women went away, having seen what happened, and they went to prepare spices themselves to try and add a bit more dignity and maybe have some further uh, embalming process. I don't know. They went to get spices themselves. But because it was a Sabbath, they didn't go to to the tomb for a day. Now, in that day certain things happened, which I think they probably heard about. I think they'd have heard about this, but here's what happened during that day. The so-called religious leaders who should have been actually observing the Sabbath were actually quite busy. Let's put up Matthew 27, verses 63 to 64. This is the religious leaders who incited the crowd to get Jesus crucified, who persuaded Pilate to do it. They come to Pilate and they say, Sir, they said, We remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver, he's talking about Jesus, said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell people that he's been raised from the dead. The last deception will be worse than the first. They were totally aware of what Jesus had taught. Ironically, they were more bothered by it or convinced by it or alert to it, I don't know what word you want to use, than the actual disciples who Jesus clearly said he was going to rise again. And none of them, including Mary, none of them expected it. But these characters, the vicious enemies, were a little bit more concerned that something's going to happen. So next one, if we can put it up, this is Pilate's response. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. So the stone was sealed, it's already in place, and a military guard, this probably were Roman soldiers actually, because I'm not sure how much these characters were allowed to have their own military at this time. It was quite an intense time, which is why the Romans were doing the executing, why Jesus was crucified. It was a narrow window when the Jews were restricted, partly because of rebellions. Otherwise, they would have stoned Jesus. That would have been their religious way of executing him. But they weren't allowed to do a lot of things at this point in history. And so they, to get Jesus killed, they had to persuade the Romans to do it. And therefore, he was crucified. And therefore, all the wonderful prophecies about his death were fulfilled. It's amazing. It really is. But it's, a, by the way, amazing. Because we're going to look at the resurrection today. So, they had Roman soldiers guarding it. Some commentators say... 
There may have been as many as 20 or more. I don't know, maybe on on how Roman soldiers were organised, cohorts and things. We're talking about a significant band of trained soldiers who were guarding the tomb. So, I think the ladies, women had heard about it and and they do say, I don't know how we're going to get into this tomb and they want to go that day. When you get through the bits and pieces you read in the different Gospels, for one reason or another, it seems that Mary Magdalene was the first there. Possibly she went ahead of the others, and it was still dark when she got there. So now let's read John 20 from verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the team tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. By the way, I think the only thing he believed is, well, Jesus is not there, because he still hadn't quite got it. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? Well, they've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me for I have not yet ascended to the father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. It's a wonderful, powerful, moving account, which like all the other resurrection accounts is very authentic as a a reality to it. But let's just enjoy for a moment the first person to meet Jesus was the person I described to you, Mary Magdalene. Now, there are grace markers in the, church, in the Bible all the way through. There are significant ones in the Gospels. One would be the way Jesus speaks to the woman at the well in John 4, who is a Samaritan woman, again, immoral woman in this case, five husbands now living with a man, not a husband. And these are markers of who Jesus has come to bring hope and liberation to, to bring salvation and forgiveness and cleansing. And Mary Magdalene stands as a classic example of the people Jesus has come to save. 
This troubled woman from a poor area who'd had seven demons cast out of her. She is the first one the risen Jesus meets. It is a marker, a flag in the ground saying, this is a new day for people like this. This is for people like this. This is about, it's about everybody. (laughs) It's about women. It's about people who are the outcasts of society. It's about people troubled by demons. It's people who haven't done well. It's people from different backgrounds and different races and types. The good news, the resurrection news is for all. And there is a deep spiritual reality or, 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 or signpost in the fact that it's Mary Magdalene who is the first one who has this good news that I am alive, Jesus said. I'm going to my father and your father, my God and your God. There's a fresh start. There's a new relationship that you can have with God. Mary, he's your father like he's my father. That's what he's going to say. It's my father, but he's now your father and and your fellow disciples. You're the first one to know this, Mary. You can now know God as Abba Father. It's incredible. It's an amazing statement. Now, before we... We're going to spend a little time on Mary, not too long. But before we get there, I feel we need to talk about this business of the resurrection. Because the resurrection is fundamental to the Christian faith. And we need to understand it if we're going to get anything out of the Restoration Man series. The resurrection is a historical event. Christianity is based on historical events. That's why in one way it is so vulnerable to attack. Because the Christian faith depends on the fact that Jesus Christ really was born of the Virgin Mary once upon a time in a stable there in Bethlehem. That that same Jesus Christ was crucified. There was a day when Roman soldiers drove nails into his hands and there was a Pilate who who condemned him to death and, and all the stuff you read in the story and Jesus died and real blood poured from his wounds and it was a real day in a hot sunny day in Jerusalem and he died a gruesome death. And there was a real day with a real morning when some women went to uh, uh, show their respects and found that the stone was rolled away. The soldiers had already gone away, I think. They'd been knocked out. And then you can read that in the other gospel. And then they ran back to tell the authorities what had happened. And, and, and the tomb was empty. And then she met the physically risen Jesus. These are important facts for the Christian faith. The resurrection of Jesus distinguishes him from all other religious founders. They are all dead. They are all still in their graves. Jesus is not in his grave. He is alive and at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And one day we will all see him face to face. And it will be the real Jesus with the wounds in his hands, but with a resurrected, glorified body, but physical, material body. The same body that was crucified, changed renewed and resurrected but that body C.S. Lewis said of this doctrine this if the story is false it is at least a much stranger story than we expected something for which philosophical religion and cyclical research and popular superstition have all alike failed to prepare us if the story is true then a wholly new mode of being has arisen in the universe That is not an overstatement. If this story is true, a wholly new mode of being has arisen. Something cosmic was going on with the resurrection. Something 
deeply fundamental. Jesus rose with a new body in the power of an endless life, breaking through death, breaking through hell, breaking through sin, and risen and victorious. Now, the early church, the New Testament writers, all believed it was true, and it therefore had these incredible consequences, which they gladly and freely went out and preached about. Every sermon in the book of Acts seems to focus on the resurrection. Read it for yourself. Every sermon, you, you can't get away from it. They actually talk about the resurrection more than the cross. They don't not talk about the cross, but the resurrection features again and again because it is essential to the gospel. The cross is essential, of course it is, but the resurrection is equally essential because it tells us that Jesus rose victorious. The job was done. Everything is completed and it changes everything. All the New Testament books refer to the resurrection. Now, of course, right from the start, the resurrection always has presented a problem to ordinary, worldly, wise people. Not just clever people. Anybody can work out that dead people don't rise. But it often has been the sticking point with those who are particularly more intelligent or alert or way it's often the point that people sort of really do we have to believe that and go like that and you can see that in the book of acts we're not going to turn to any of this but there are two notable examples once when paul is preaching once paul is preaching to the athenians and they listen to him and they treat him with quite a degree of respect until in acts 17 verse 32 he mentions the resurrection And it said, then they began to mock, they began to scorn him, and many of them walked out. So they're listening while he's talking about a good man, good teaching. Jesus, sadly crucified by the Romans, they nod sagely. Then when he says, Jesus rose from the dead, physically alive. Oh, for goodness sake, what are you talking about? I'm not wasting my time with that. And and half of them go out. You find later, when Paul is talking to a Roman governor called Festus, Again, there is quite a respectful silence as he listens to what Paul teaches. And then Paul gets the resurrection and Festus bursts out, Paul, you're mad. Much learning has turned you mad. And you will see, once you get to that, it's a sticking point. What are you talking about? Physical resurrection. You're mad. So I can listen and treat with respect your talk about Jesus' teaching or maybe even your talk of a Messiah Uh, And something for the Jews, you know, talk about uh, even his death, sad, sacrificial death. To a degree, I can get that. But when you get to this, I don't want to hear it. These attacks, wherever they come from, are rooted in two very fundamental things. People say, well, dead people don't rise. And another associated thing, which is probably very common in our sort of world, and always has been common in many areas, is supernatural things don't happen. You only have what you see and measure and quantify. Only what you can rationally understand, only what you can test materially, those are the things that happen. Supernatural things don't happen. Dead people don't rise. It is a fundamental clash with the whole way we rather arrogantly think we can judge everything around us. The problem for all the critics right from the beginning, and it's still true today, is that there are some niggly issues around the resurrection you can't resolve. There are significant evidences for the resurrection. Now, when I use the word evidence, I'm not talking about scientific laboratory evidence. I'm talking of 
what we call legal evidence, the sort of evidence that will be presented in court. It's real evidence, but it has to be weighed and looked at. It's not quite the same as just forensic. Forensic can be part of your evidence, but it's not the whole thing. This is much broader, more like legal evidence. Now, the legal evidence for Jesus being resurrected is pretty convincing. It's very hard to argue down. And although the person in the street might say, well, yeah, dead people don't rise, can't have happened, anybody who intelligently, and I mean this, or thoughtfully looks at the evidence has got a problem. There are things you've got to explain away, and people have tried to do it. I haven't got time to go into all the details, but people have suggested, here's two of the more eccentric ones, which are suggested by highly intelligent people by academic people. One is the gas theory, which is that Jesus' body deteriorated abnormally quickly. He turned into just decomposed vapour within two days. No other body has ever done that, but that is the explanation to try and get round how the clothes were still there in the shape of a body, but, but empty. So there was a very fast extraordinary, almost, well, miraculously, frankly, deterioration of the whole body. Here's another one. It's called the swoon theory, that Jesus didn't die, he just fainted. I mean, this is stupid, although it's put forward by intelligent people, because, you know, before he was crucified, he was flogged. People died from the flogging. The blood loss was huge. He's then nailed to a cross. The Romans knew how to kill people. Roman soldiers dealt with death in a hideously common way. They were killing people all the time. They were always doing it. They knew what a dead body looked like. A Roman soldier knew how to finish someone off. They knew what they were doing when they made a choice not to break Jesus' legs, but to stick a spear right through his heart, his vital organs, so that blood and water came out. But even if he wasn't dead, how on earth did he revive in the coolness of the tomb, shake off the effects of the crucifixion, roll the stone back, knock out three or four, maybe 20 Roman guards, and zooming, I mean, Superman, and, and then appeared looking fairly frisk and frisky and bright to, so that she thought he was a gardener. She didn't think he was the walking dead. She didn't think he was something out of a horror film. She thought he was a gardener. So he just probably had a little bit of you know, lint or something, rubbed himself down, had a little bit of a shower, and she thought he was a god. What nonsense. I mean, but why do people do that? You think, well, well, of course it's not. They do it because they're trying to explain something that you can't fully explain. The evidence challenges the rational conclusion. It really does challenge it. I haven't time to explore it all, but the big one that's here this morning is the empty tomb. It is a problem. What happened to the body? The enemies of Jesus and the enemies of the early church would have loved to have produced a body. When you read the book of Acts, within, this is within weeks, mind you, of the crucifixion, only weeks, they are talking about Jesus being alive. All the same players are around. It's Jerusalem. All the movers and shakers, the powerful people who had crucified Jesus are still around. And the apostles are saying, Jesus is alive, Jesus is alive. Read your first few chapters of Acts. Nobody can just put a pin in it by saying, no, he's not. Here's his body, a, de- a decomposed body. Don't be stupid. 
We've looked up, we've made sure that, that that is shown to be rubbish. The whole thing could be completely destroyed in a moment, in the early days. Thousands of people are following this. The authorities are disturbed by it. They would do all they could to undermine it. And yet their earliest explanation is still what is said, which is what they were dealing with in Matthew. We're going to say the disciples stole the body. So that would have been one of the early explanations, not the gastric wounds theory. The disciples stole the body. It's a crazy thing. It's nearly as crazy as a swoon theory. For the disciples to steal the body, you need to believe that within 24 hours, they turn from guys scared like scared rabbits, running away from the cross, hidden, hiding themselves. They turned into something like a crack SAS troop who managed to come along, deal with 20 Roman soldiers, roll the stone back, get the body out, do it carefully so they leave the clothes behind, the linen behind, take it out carefully, so get rid of it, so cover their tracks that no one ever finds it happens. I don't believe the disciples you read in the New Testament remotely could do that. They were not the movers and shakers. They did not have friends in high places. They couldn't bribe Pilate or the guards. They were the bottom of the pile. They're fishermen. They're tax collectors. They're oddballs. They're a, a weird cult. They're not people who can influence. They've gonna, they're not going to be having strings to pull. They could not have got at that tomb so sealed and protected and stolen the body. And even if they did, it is very unlikely that no one would ever confess to it. All of the early disciples died for their faith. They died for a lie? These who'd heard the teaching of Jesus, which would be so morally strong, committed a very calculated fraud, promoted it vigorously, and then died for it. It doesn't really make sense psychologically. Nobody, people did deny Jesus in the face of death. But nobody said, I not only want to deny Jesus, I want to tell you it's all a fraud. I know where the body was put, just so you don't kill me. People didn't do that. They didn't do that. And a funny variant of this is, even I think, odder. Some people say that the enemies of Jesus stole the body to stop a resurrection myth arising. Well, that didn't work, did it? That was a bad plan. And when they soon found out that they had made a mistake, I think they might have put it right. If their whole calculation was to stop a resurrection myth, you think they would do something. I don't think it's even common sense that they stole it. One commentator writes this, the silence of the Jewish leaders in relation to the resurrection of Christ is as striking as the voice of the disciples. That is evidence That's powerful evidence, and you shouldn't ignore it. The silence of the Jewish leaders in relation to the resurrection of Christ is as striking as the voice of the disciples. Now, there are many other uh, things that are weighty to look at. The grave clothes, the the nature of the appearances of Jesus, the change in behavior of the disciples, even the very origins of the church and the history of the church and all sorts of things. And uh, they all are evidences for the reality of the resurrection. But uh, perhaps one of the weightiest is the various eyewitness accounts. Now, you can think, we can get very familiar with them, but these are weighty evidences of the resurrection. Weighty evidences. Let me try and explain it to you. I have to, don't want to be too, too long-winded, but I think it's important for Christians, for our faith. And if you're not a Christian, you need to know about this. It's going to change your life. You see... 
The various people who see Jesus do so in very ordinary ways. They all seem to need persuading that he's alive. None of them have got a natural predisposition to be looking for him. None of them are, including the one we read this morning. They're not expecting it. And that, that is, by the way, quite important. If it's a hallucination, which, of course, some people say, then usually people are, are, are wanting, excited, wanting it. These people aren't excited. They're depressed. They're fed up. The two on the road to Emmaus, Mary Magdalene, they're despairing. They're not expecting it at all. The, the ones in the upper room, the 11, are scared. They're not expecting it. Psychologically, that's unlikely that they're going to have an hallucination. On top of that, it's very unlikely that they're going to have an hallucination in a crowd, 11, or on one occasion, hundreds of people saw Jesus. That just doesn't happen either. And if it is a hallucination, well, you know, it still gives us all the problems we just talked about. There's still a body somewhere. It, wasn't appear, it didn't appear. And, but, uh, you know, we have all the explanation I spent five minutes on because it doesn't solve any of the empty tomb stuff. What, and this saddens me. What I'm about to say saddens me. Many leading theologians who would claim to be Christians, and maybe sadly some of them really are Christians, try to go down this road that it was a hallucination, that actually there is a, somewhere in the Middle East a body of Jesus has rotted away. Uh, but what happened, and this is how they will try and square the circle, is that a genuinely believed myth arose, something that they call symbolically true. What codswallop? What are we talking about? It's either true or it's not true. Now, this argument, and I don't like it, though it's often put forward by theological people, is of a more liberal persuasion, theological liberal persuasion, is that actually Jesus, you know, the body did stay there, but, but the, this is the first, what we've just seen, of hallucinations and ghost, inverted commas, uh, sightings, and quite quickly a myth grew up. And a myth, as I said, is something genuinely believed but not factually true. Now, I think that is a fraud to put that forward. You have not got that option. The New Testament clearly, clearly teaches that the real Jesus rose from the dead. He was physically alive. He was not a ghost. And actually... That is a foundation for everything that's taught. So you've either got to reject it, which you can do, you're free to do, and say it's rubbish, I don't believe it, or you've got to accept it. You can't say, well, it's all rather nice, there's a risenness to Jesus. I've heard that said. I actually heard that said by a bishop some years ago. There's a risenness to Jesus. Now, not every bishop does this, so I'm not knocking bishops particularly, but it is bad when a bishop talks like this, in my opinion. The risenness of Jesus simply means that his ideas live on, that, that his teaching lives on. He died. It doesn't matter whether he's alive or dead. He lived on in his ideas and the minds of his followers. And they were a little bit hyped up at this point, and they imagined they saw him. That is rubbish. Jesus appeared in a very physical way. They thought he was a gardener or um, an ordinary walker on the road. It wasn't like a mystical thing. They, they touched him. They ate food with him. They had breakfast with him on the, on the beach on one occasion. There isn't a middle road of an honourable, trustworthy myth, myth, the risenness of Jesus. It's either true or it's not true. And I firmly believe it is true. And I think the very way the uh, first-hand accounts are recorded are important. We haven't time to look at them all. But they are quite random and mixed up. When you read them, the gospel accounts, you have to work quite hard to see if they link together. 
But I tell you what, that's what always happens with eyewitness accounts. And that tragedy on Friday, tragic event in Nice, if you interview a whole range of people who are part of that, their stories will tell you different bits of what they experienced. Some of it is pretty horrible. Some have heard some on the television. And people have different perspectives. And sometimes even us, it's hard to know, like, there's a bit on the television of the lorry. Is that before he killed all those people? Or is that at the end of when he killed them? And is that when the police shot him? You know, you can't almost tell. And did that person see it? as it was happening, or did they just pick it up from their friends? And it's all like that. That's always how eyewitness accounts are. And that's exactly how it comes over in the New Testament. And let me tell you this. People do create myths. Yes, they do. And religious myths of the time we're talking about, 2,000 years ago, are always created in a, in a particular way. They're over the top. They're spectacular. They're eulogizing the person. They're verbose. They're unreal. They're strangely constructed. This doesn't read like this. This reads like real life. If these accounts have been made up, then it is some of the cleverest writing in history. And I'll tell you something else. It is completely anachronistic. That means it's completely out of time. Because if it's fictional and written like this then the nearest it is in fictional writing is modern novel. And people didn't invent the modern novel till about 200 years ago. So this is a very unusual, because it is down to, I mean, having stuff like Mary Magdalene, that would not have happened in a myth. You need men. Women aren't treated as serious witnesses. You know, it would all be stylized. People didn't write myths like this. They simply did not do it. It's like a novel. It's like 1,800 years too early if it's made up. And it's not made up. It's a real account of eyewitness accounts of an incredible, incredible event. And I'm enjoying this, but I've got to be careful. It's a real event. (laughs) And it's a factual truth. And it is extraordinary. We are moving to the last phase. It is extraordinarily important extremely important. Through the resurrection, a new order of forgiveness of sins and justification from everything you've done wrong is possible. If Jesus is alive, you can be completely free of your sin. It's paid for, done, and he's alive. It's God's amen to the whole process. It also means that you now have someone on your side who is stronger and greater than ever. And in the name of Jesus, you can ask prayers. In the name of Jesus, who lives today, you can cast out demons. In the name of Jesus, you can lay hands on the sick and expect them to recover. He has risen and he's given his name to us. And the whole process of victory over sin and sickness and death has begun. I'm not saying it's completely finished. It's begun, but we're beginning to taste now of the age to come. One day we'll have new bodies like his body. The beginning of the end, the resurrection, the beginning of the end of a sin-sick world and a fallen world. The last phase in God's dealings with humanity started on this day, and we're in it still. And the next stage will be the return of this same Jesus. Amen? It's wonderful. It introduces so many things, and one big thing it introduces is the revolution in our relationship with God. Let's quickly look at John 20, verses 16 and 17. Just be a few minutes, only a few minutes. Look at it quickly. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. 
Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Now, let's just enjoy these two verses from here. Verse 16, it seems, and I think it's totally realistic, that Mary, having thought he was the gardener, and he didn't have any answers for her, she is, remember, devastated that her Lord has died and there's no body to honour. What's happened? Someone's stolen him. The soldiers have taken him away. They've treated him with disrespect. All sorts of things could be going through her head. And I think she turned back sobbing to look again at the empty tomb. And while she's doing that, behind her, she hears a familiar voice call her name, Mary. Perhaps in Aramaic, perhaps with a gentleness. It's the good shepherd calling his sheep immediately that's Jesus and she turns back towards him and her eyes are opened well we could go on all morning because that's how it works do you know you can think about it for ages if you're not a Christian yet but you need that moment when Jesus just calls your name and suddenly it will all change it makes sense so oh you it is alive oh I get it I get why why it was important he died oh yeah I get it I get it I've gone to four alpha courses, never got it. Now I've got it. <laughs> I pray that happens to you this morning. There's that moment when your eyes are opened and you see Jesus, he is alive. That's what happens to her. And then you get this interesting verse 17, which is really a very important verse. But I think it needs a little bit of explanation. What do we make of Jesus' words? He says, do not hold me onto me. Do not hold on to me. I have not yet ascended to the Father, etc." Does it seem a bit weird when you first read it? It does to me when I first read it, a long time ago now. You think, he looks a bit aloof, a bit mysterious, a bit spooky. Don't come near me or don't touch me or whatever. Well, I think you just need to pause for a moment. When we read something, we just read what's written. Of course we do. But we don't get the body language. We don't get the pauses. We don't get the time scale. And quite clearly what happened was that Mary was so overwhelmed that Jesus was there, who she loved and owed everything to, that she grabbed him. (laughs) Now, she may well have grabbed his legs and his feet. That was quite normal in those days. So it may not have been like we think of a hug up here. She just fell at his feet and held his legs, held his feet. That is very much more likely, that she just fell and held his feet, held on in delight and in tears of joy, just kept on holding on to him. That is very natural, very likely, and would make sense of what Jesus says. He doesn't say, don't touch me. He says, don't cling on to me. Leon Morris very helpfully explains this verse, and I can't do better than just tell you what he says, because I think it's good. Jesus, in effect, says, stop clinging to me. There is no need for this, as I am not yet on the point of permanent ascension. Obviously, this is him explaining it, right? It's not how Jesus would have talked. I'm not yet at the point of permanent ascension. You will have another opportunity to see me before I ascend to the Father, This time is a time for joy and for sharing the good news. Go and tell my brothers that I am alive and in the process of ascending to my father and your father, my God and your God. Now, I think that's much more helpful because it looks a bit weird when you just read it. He's not being standoffish or saying, get off me. He's not doing that. She's been there probably for minutes And Jesus said, you're going to see me again. I've not yet ascended. (laughs) You know, it's all right, Mary. Go and tell the others. Go with the good news and tell the others. 
that I'm on, the I'm, I'm on the process of bringing victory for all of you. I think there is a process element to this. I am on my way. I'm going. My father and your father, and we know that process that involved the, the resurrection appearances, some teaching, the ascension, and the coming of the Holy Spirit. So I think there's a hint of that, 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 that something's going on. Go and tell them I'm in the process. But don't worry, I've not yet ascended. It's a wonderful new relationship. Jesus says, that's the very key thing. Now you can tell my brothers. Now, I don't think we can exaggerate and say that is specific. Once upon a time, they were his disciples, and actually he called them his friends. But now they are his brothers. Let's look at Hebrews 2, 11 and 12 quickly. But this is about Jesus. Both the one who makes people holy, that's Jesus, and those who are made holy are of the same family. Jesus has brought us into the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly I will sing your praise. That's a quote from an Old Testament psalm prophesying that what would happen. In and through Jesus, you come in to the family of God. The family. God becomes your father in a more intimate way than you could ever imagine. He becomes your Abba father. And you have Jesus as your brother. Be assured this is specific and revolutionary. It's in him. So the very nature of the way Jesus says it is important. I go to my father and your father. We are not like well, we've just got our inherent right to be there. We can swagger in. We are only in there in him. That's why Jesus is the way, only the way. You have to be in Christ. You can be in Christ by faith and by just asking him into your life. But you need to be in Christ. In Christ, you become a child of God. You're born of the Spirit. You can call God Abba Father, your dad, your daddy. You can intimately know God and he will be intimate with you. You can know that Jesus is your brother. You are joint heirs with Christ. That's incredible. You become co-inheritors of all that he has. Am I the only one enjoying this? This is good, isn't it? And you get that in Christ. You don't deserve it. You don't earn it. Mary Magdalene gets it. She's the first person told that. Think what I told you about Mary Magdalene's life. Remember that. She is brought into this relationship. My father, your father. My God, your God. You, Mary, are now in a new relationship through me. That is true. That's what happens when you become a Christian. And we will finish by looking at the Apostle Paul, a passage where he unpacks that briefly. Look at Galatians 4, verses 4 to 7. Don't start uh, worrying about... You know, what's having for dinner? Because this is the best bit of the whole thing. This is Paul spelling it out, right? Galatians 4, verses 4 to 7. When the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that would be us, condemned by sin, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, he is speaking to men and women, Jew and Gentile, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Is that good or not? Yes. Now that 
is simply New Testament teaching based on what Jesus said in John 20. That is not Paul doing a a follow-on PR job and tinkering with the gospel. No, no, no. This is what Jesus was telling Mary Magdalene. And as the revelation of what it was gradually sunk in, and it took a while to sink in, actually, as it gradually sunk in, as the disciples got the fact he was alive, got the fact what he meant, as he sat and talked to them, explained to them what it meant, as the Holy Spirit came and gave them more understanding, so they really got it. And by the time Paul's writing, we've really got it. When you become a Christian, you realize that Jesus came as the Son of God, a real man, born of a woman, God become man. He came and lived in this sin-sick world so that he might buy out from sin, buy out from law, redeem us. That we might become not just redeemed slaves, but sons. All of us come into his sonship. Can become co-heirs with him. His sons. And God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The Holy Spirit can now come into us. And it's an intimacy. Abba, Father. We can talk to God like Daddy. So you are no longer a slave, but a God's child. And God has made you also an heir. We inherit everything Christ has. It is wonderful. It, what a privilege. All your identity, all your security is wrapped up in this. That's what you need to understand. This, first and foremost, is what's true of you if you're a follower of Jesus. It's more important than anything else, your breeding, your education, your background, good or bad. This is where your identity is. Amen. Amen. Let's enjoy it with a final song. Can we have the band come up, please? Yeah, let's praise Jesus. Lord, we thank you. Yeah, I'm joining you. Lord, thank you for all you have done. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that you're my saviour, my Lord. Thank you you've risen from the dead. You are at the right hand of the Father in heaven, and I am in you, and you are in me. I want, it's wonderful, Lord. I love you and thank you this morning. Amen.